There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there, I'm Mark Kenny, and this, of course, is Democracy Sausage, produced each week jointly by the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, where I'm professor, and Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Joining me, as always, is the redoubtable political scientist, Dr. Maria Taflaga, from the ANU's highly respected School of Politics and International Relations. G'day, Maria. It was only a couple of days ago when we were in this uh, somewhat tiny studio talking to our very own Nobel Prize-winning Vice-Chancellor Brian Schmidt about coronavirus, climate change, hailstorms, and, of course, cosmology. Indeed, indeed. Hello, everyone. And I guess if you want to know why uh, smoke affects grapes and ruins them for winemaking purposes, you should download the pod because Brian reveals all. Indeed, he does. Now, before we get to our other guests, let me make a couple of points about the extraordinary situation in which the world finds itself all of a sudden. A dozen years ago or so, as a political correspondent, I watched as the still new Rudd Labor government was forced to junk its self-described fiscal conservatism and throw the switch to spending. It was bizarre and it felt entirely novel at the time. Names like Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, Bear Stearns and terms like collateralised debt instruments and subprime mortgages became common in news bulletins as Australians struggled to understand the scale and the cause of the global financial crisis. I was there with the PM in New York in September of that year as he met with key financial sector central bank officials and government leaders. We all heard the message from Treasury regarding not just the scale of spending, but the target of emergency measures. Go hard, go early, and go households was the message from Treasury. That was largely a demand crisis, a collapse in confidence causing a spending strike and a credit strike. It was a financial crisis threatening banks and other financial institutions. This is the same but different. Now, thanks to the primary cause of a global health crisis, we have a secondary supply crisis, and that has morphed also into a bit of a demand crisis as a tertiary response. And there's even an oil shock thrown in, it seems. By the time you're listening to this, the details of the Morrison government's stimulus response will probably be known. A government that had defined itself as fiscally conservative critically by slamming Labor's GFC response as profligate and, which had already taken a victory lap over delivering a $7 billion surplus, finds itself in an uncannily similar situation to Rudd's new government in 2008. Can it rise to the challenge? Let's bring in our panel. 
Sarah Eisen is a political correspondent with the West, West Australian newspaper. Sarah, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me. Peter Martin AM is business and economy editor at The Conversation. He's a former Commonwealth Treasury official, a former economics editor at The Age, and indeed is a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome back, Peter. G'day. And Dr. Liz Hanna is Senior Fellow at the ANU's Fenner School of Environment and Society and at the Climate Change Institute. Welcome to you, Liz. Good to be here. Now, Peter, let's start with you being a resident economist here. What's going on with this uh, economic situation that we see as a, as a function of the, uh, of the coronavirus crisis? And is it right to be seeing it in, in, in the frame of the GFC as uh, it now seems to be being viewed? It's a bit different because the GFC was a crisis of the financial system not working. Now, that may yet happen. We've seen such a fall in uh, share markets. And by the way, if you haven't considered selling your shares, you should. And if you haven't considered switching your super investment option over from balance to safe or high growth to safe, you probably should. And I'm not a licensed investment advisor, but... You do realise that given the profile of our listeners, that you telling them to offload their shares could spark a whole new dimension of this financial crisis. I thought about that as I changed my own super over. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, the, um, nonetheless, I did it after uh, the share price fell 10% in a week. Now, someone who is... Um, uh, in a defined benefit scheme, and there aren't many of those left, but uh, there are in the university sector and uh, there are in the public service. When you are about to retire, your sort of future payments per fortnight are set basically at the share level, the share price level, the day you retire, which means that someone who retired uh, today would be getting 17% less for the rest of their life than if they retired a month ago. That's Yikes. that's that's how uh, how extreme that is. So it may flow through to the financial sector because there are lots of complicated products in the US, derivatives that are based on shares that uh, just as last time, in fact, no one really understands. Um, but that was okay because the share prices were high because of Trump's uh, tax cuts and so on. As soon as uh, the, the underlying basis behind uh, those share prices goes, people realise they don't understand the products and the financial system might seize up. That hasn't happened yet. The reason the share prices have fallen is the prospects for almost every company now are dire. Most companies involve people being together, people leaving their houses. Um, not all of them. We were talking uh, just before we uh, came here about video conferencing, but um, most uh, companies involve uh, well, you wouldn't want to be going to the cinema, for instance, or, or something like that if, if, if you thought uh, this would get worse, nor would you want to be going shopping. So because of that, uh, the, the underlying um, value of shares, future earnings of companies has collapsed. Now, add to that the fact that China is a key component in supply chains. Uh, the way it wasn't um, you know, in the global financial crisis that uh, almost everything you make, including, by the way, masks uh, for... Um, Which uh, come from uh, Hubei comes province. from China. And, yeah. and President Trump, who's put up uh, tariffs on China products not to allow them in, had to remove the tariffs <laughs> from these. Um, so that's what you meant when you referred to a, a supply shock. We're not sure we'll be able to get the goods. The demand shock is we're not going to want to leave our homes. 
And that is going to feed through to employment more generally. There are uh, forecasts of uh, 100,000 jobs, uh, which I think would be entirely believable and conservative, uh, vanishing in Australia. So um, these kind of it's a it's a different confluence of things. It probably needs a different response. And as you su- suggested, the the government has sort of pride reasons anyway for not doing the same response as uh, uh, last time. But um, it is uh, of the three crises I've seen in my life. The, one of them being the 1987 share market uh, collapse. This uh, this looks like being the the longest lasting and the, the hardest to. Hardest to see uh, a way out the other side at the moment. And it's interesting, isn't it, that whole thing about whether it's a financial crisis or a health crisis, it's almost a, a distinction without a difference, isn't it, in terms of uh, how it's felt on the ground? Because as yeah. you say, there are those supply chain issues which are going to affect companies and there's there's so much going to happen on the demand side, which is very similar to yeah, the well, collapse in confidence in the GFC. It might be, it will be, uh, that we get a vaccine and, uh, you know, this this passes in a year or, or whatever. So perhaps but, you should be buying shares in, in, uh, those, in CSL. <laughs> CSL. Or, yeah. But what will happen then, and this is what we saw in the recession in the US, uh, the, the best guesses are we'll certainly have a recession in Australia, is that things changed and they didn't go back. So the US lost a lot of low-skill jobs. So when firms came back or new firms came back, they came back with automation. So we'll see permanent differences. And we avoided that. We didn't have a recession in 2008, and we've kept quite a lot of those low-skill jobs, but um, we're likely to see permanent changes. One of them might be that uh, we get used to travelling less. We get used to going out less. So there's likely to be... uh, The effects, even when this ends, are likely to be ongoing. Do you really think it will be worse than the the global financial crisis, which is the name we give it here, of course? The Great Europe, Recession in exactly, the US. Exactly. In Europe and the US, it's the, it's the Great Recession and, you know, obviously the order of magnitude of devastation there is of a whole different level. I mean, do, do you really think that coronavirus is necessarily going to be worse than the, than the GFC? Well, it, there's one thing they have in common, which is that then, as now, the Treasury for, you know, for the first time ever then and the second time ever now, uh, forecast a recession. Um, now, the Treasury was wrong then because um, its actions of giving people $800 and then $900 increased spending as you thought they would. But bear in mind then that people felt okay about leaving their homes to go to ADMs. Um, yeah, the GFC was abstract in that sense, wasn't it? From, yes. Like it was a, it was a, it was a thing we were being told about, but unless you were losing your job or whatever, you weren't necessarily feeling it. You might have been feeling less confident as a result of it, but that's what that spending, uh, those cash injections and so forth and were the, about, the, the bolstering other, confidence. The other big thing they did was the school halls program, which yeah. is brilliant because there's one in every suburb, every town, no planning needed, and you can keep local people in work. Yeah, I agree. What, I think it was brilliant too. What the government will do this time is probably what the government uh, could have done then, and uh, it has the same effect, and that's giving money to every local council and saying, okay, you've got a plan on the drawing board. Local councils are always planning things. Do it now with this money. That'll have the same effect of keeping things going everywhere. But um, Great if your name's Bob Jelly, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I but uh, I, don't, I don't know about... Um, 
they may do something similar to what Labor did with handing out money. It's very risky given this is uh, pre-recorded to uh, – Yeah, uh, so that, that is something we should say that there's a, there's a fair likelihood they haven't know announced something it about this. But, but what they might do is give money to certain groups of people, so a boost to the pension, possibly a boost or a temporary boost to New Start possibly um, ending uh, the waiting list for New Start. So you've got to wait for several weeks before you get the benefit just to make sure people can spend. And also they need to somehow, and I'm not confident they'll do it, but somehow meld health into this. So if, for instance, they gave people New Start as soon as they stopped working, that would make people feel better about not coming into work and uh, you know, help with the transmission of the virus. Yeah, There's all sorts of things they could do. The impression I get, and, you know, I might be proved wrong, but the impression I get is that, um, quote, prepare to be disappointed, Peter, that these uh, their measures will not be sufficient. Now, that's okay because Labor's measures weren't sufficient uh, the first time. You know, they came back again and again. Well, the PM has been using that term for quite some time now, scalable, which which really yes. did suggest that they knew they might have to ratchet it up. Sarah, this morning, as we uh, record this anyway, um, the PM gave that address to their financial review forum in Sydney, and he didn't give details of whatever the package was going to be because it hadn't actually been signed off at Cabinet at that point. But... Uh, what did you make of the the general tenor of his comments, uh, his entreaties to government, uh, business, for example, to you know do the patriotic thing? Mm, that was the main thing I definitely got from it was the the call to to you know everyone else was saying, listen, we're working on this. The you know the treasurer late into last night was was canvassing this, but here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about businesses. I want to talk about I want to talk about Australians. And he was saying, you know, to use it, he even used the word opportunity. Take this as an opportunity in terms of training, in terms of investment and so on. Not be scared off from from spending, from investing, um, from keeping on staff and, and maybe training them if maybe you don't need them actually to work or maybe they can't work, um, but to, to seek out the opportunities so as not to let this get worse than it is and, and potentially, yeah, um, reap some kind of benefit from, from the sort of situation we're going to find ourselves in. Yeah, Liz, we were talking before about, uh, you know, again, comparing this, this with the GFC. At the time of the GFC, there, for a long time before that, there'd been, you know, a skills shortage. It was afflicting uh, many companies. And so it was a, a, a fairly sensible message for the government to put out then to, for, to companies, hang on to your staff because there is another side to this. We will come through it. And when we do, you don't want to be in the situation where you can't hire the sort of skilled labour you need. So that seems to be the same sort of message now. It makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, yes. My concern, of course, is that there's. we know that there's a direct relationship between uh, poverty, as in not having an income, and ill health. Uh, and hence the fact that you get the greatest investment by investing into those who are at that lowest level. I'm not entirely sure how, if the decision does come out when they do announce their package, that putting the money that can be used in training is actually going to get throughout the economy and particularly into the hands of those who would need it most. Hence the fact that <clears throat> those of us in the health and, and no doubt the welfare sector would be much uh, much happier if we actually saw direct investments into those at the at the bottom end, um, and knowing also that if they actually get more money, they're going to spend it, and they're going to spend it immediately well, because that's, they're that's, struggling to buy and, right. and to that's pay a, what they do as compared point. to 
it, it, it sort of disappear into the system, you know, such as what, uh, you know, it, I mean, if it was a training and it came to universities or it went to TAFE schools, et cetera, I'm not sure how that would get into the economy. Well, I suppose the point of it, though, is, is about, it's about saying to companies, don't shed your labour, don't put people on to, mm. you know, don't actually make people unemployed. If you are, if you are going to go through a period where you're a little overstaffed, perhaps use that as an opportunity to put some of your people into training programs. Perhaps the package will continue, you know, contain incentives, tax breaks and the like in order to facilitate that so that, uh, you know, we don't have a spike in unemployment. I mean, obviously mm. that would be a bad mm. thing. I- interesting point though, uh, that Liz makes, uh, Maria, because you know, we've heard for a long time, we, we're all aware of the fact that the uh, new start, the unemployment benefit is so low and that no government has really done anything about it for many years. And that is, we, we know that if there was an increase to new start, that that money would go straight back into the economy. It doesn't go into paying down mortgages. It doesn't go into savings accounts. It goes straight back into the economy. The government has been quite careful about messaging this and saying it doesn't want to do anything in this stimulus package that uh, the term is that bakes in expenditure ongoing. But I was having a look at this and I thought, what about the idea, for example, of a midway point, increasing new start a little bit, backdating that increase from, say, July 1, the start of this financial year. Give I've that got Josh's a- phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I said this, on, I've said this around the place. You're going to give him the idea. It's... But they, but by by doing that, they could do a modest increase to New Start, which comes with a an initial cash injection as well in the form of back pay, but doesn't cripple the budget in the long term. I think they'll go with a one off payment. I mean, so much of the government's rhetoric around the stimulus packages, up until very recently, has actually been about product differentiation with labour, which is really frustrating um, as, you know, someone who is a concerned citizen who doesn't want the economy to go into recession and for people to lose their jobs. I think it's disappointing that the government isn't more bipartisan in its approach to what is a clear and present and existential threat to to all of us. And if there's a sort of a, a pattern uh, with politics and particularly, I think, the coalition over the last decade, really since the climate stuff really kicked off with, well, you know, the Labor's doing that, so therefore we can't do that. That's a Labor solution. We need a coalition solution mm. because, you know, too too much of this is still about political communication, product differentiation and winning elections. And and I I don't think they want to raise New Start because they, they – haven't you know one it's actually devilish, devilishly difficult to, to do that it's expensive of, too yeah and it's because you know there are all of these sort of funding um kind of caps like people reach that and then it interacts with these other payments that they have and you get these cascades right and it's devilishly kind of complicated it requires like a full-scale review that is long overdue and well needed i think what they will actually do is just go with one-off payments to to pensioners and to um, welfare recipients um and it means that they can shut the conversation down and not open it up which is I think what they they want to do. They want to keep it. They want to keep it constrained to the crisis of coronavirus and how we're keeping you safe. I think you're probably right, but isn't that just an admission that the rate is too low? I mean, if you're going to have to sort of give people a a one-off payment, no. I think the logic will be. I think the logic will be. Well, we know they'll spend it, but they won't complete the sentence because they don't have enough money to buy stuff. Mm. Mm. I think. I mean, will do you think New Start and all of this will need to be looked at anyway? I mean, during estimates, they were different departments were grilled on this, not just increasing it, which has been called for 
you know, even by the business sector because of the possibility of people needing income support um, just because of getting laid off. But in terms of like um, the mutual obligations and so on, potentially not being able to be met during the virus, will you be able to go out and go to your ex-interviews? Will you be able to do this? Mm. Like there surely needs to be concessions in this space anyway. You need to look at it. You can't just go, we've dealt with this. We've given people a a one-off payment and it will be as easy as that. People are bringing up the new start debate quite a lot. And in terms of, yeah, the obligations, the the amount, everything has been um, front of mind, not just by Labor and the Greens, but yeah, the business community as well. I think if if this crisis turns out to be the economic disaster that Peter said it was, no doubt this will spark a whole series of conversations about how the economy runs because the economy's shape will be different at the end of it. We can only hope that a silver lining out of what is probably going to be a torrid and terrible time is that perhaps there'll be more empathy in the community for the way people on welfare are administered, governed, controlled and monitored. Mm. And perhaps we might become a little bit more generous and empathetic about how we talk about people who are at the bottom end of the yeah, scale. Yeah, I think that's probably right, especially, like I said, the business community saying, oh, look, maybe New Start or maybe some kind of Centrelink allowance will be needed to make sure if someone gets at, laid off that they've you know, got something to keep them going. We'd want it to see it higher, though, so that it's enough. It's like your every, your, your neighbours, your, your Dave's and Sue's next door who had jobs will need, can't survive off New Start. It's not just the, the welfare dependent. People are now going to need income support and I think it will be a demonstration of just how viable our um, income support measures are. You've also got to look at where the casual jobs are and they're in uh, restaurants. They're in, they're in the kind of things Aged that- care, health. Yeah. Well, at least aged care services will keep going if people are prepared to come into work. But uh, the, the, the casual jobs are in the hospitality industries, which uh, will be um, at the very least, using Mark, the literal definition of decimated, will be um, at, at the very least decimated. I think what people don't fully take into account, and I don't think what Morrison has taken into account yet, is how much a crisis changes things. Now, what happened with Labor was that it did something which would have been impossible six months earlier, right? Checks to everyone. And this has been forgotten. The opposition, the coalition supported that. Yeah, the initial it, lot. Yeah, 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 the first lot, not the second lot. Um, and the, the leader, Malcolm Turnbull, wanted to support the second lot and was, was overruled. It's only... After the event, when uh, things are back to normal, uh, the, the crisis is over, that uh, the opposition started um, you know, playing up this narrative of Labor being irresponsible. When there's a crisis, you will find that the Labor opposition will be supportive of what happens and you will find that all sorts of things which didn't seem possible will be possible. So in a sense, um, particularly... If the crisis deepens, you know, particularly uh, over the coming months, you'll find that all sorts of things will be possible. A um, senior executive in the bureaucracy was uh, saying, the name, saying right? "Sources <laughs> are always give us, give us, a, give us a clue. What are the initials?" Was talking about uh, the, the philosophy of uh, providing advice to governments, and it's. You provide good advice. The government rejects good advice. Okay, fine. We reject, reject what you think is good advice because it doesn't fit in with its policy. But you don't uh, put that in the bin. You keep it in your backpack. Uh, you keep it ready to take out when there's a crisis. 
and they might need something. Um, and at those times, governments and the community are responsive to things. Now, it said this was Margaret Thatcher in the UK during the uh, Falklands War when there was a crisis. She was able to introduce a whole lot of privatisations and uh, all sorts of things sort of under cover of a crisis. So it is a time when anything is possible. And, uh, you know, of course, as we saw last time, it'll close. And everyone will say, like this the might coalition says, this, what were we thinking? What were you? This might explain why Scott Morrison came clean about his uh, Hillsong pastor oh, again. So, yes. So yes. strange. Yes. I would have just, so anyway, it's 3.30 on a Wednesday. No better time. Go on. That yeah. was the oddest thing. By just, the way. Just by the way, just while we're dealing with this. Just suddenly admit it and also say, well, I was asked directly about it, so I answered What's it. What's the big <laughs> deal? Was I don't understand <laughs> what people are worried. What are you talking time, about? Yeah. Oh, so strange. So strange. How how important was, uh, Peter, I, I have my own view about this as well. We were certainly both journalists covering it. But how important was the actual shock and awe aspect of the package itself? Like not just the material um, change of the policy that was being announced, but the, the signal that it sent to the economy that the government is serious, that the parliament is serious, and that it is doing everything that it can. Is that something that Scott Morrison needs to have in mind? There were parts of it that uh, weren't shock and awe, that were simply necessary to keep the financial system going, and there were parts of it that were, and what we saw with Rudd, each time he made a big announcement, he made one that was bigger than people had expected, and this might be a problem for the government when they announce what might have been announced by the time people uh, hear this, but they don't do that because Rudd actually got that by spending far more than people thought, they thought, it's truth. This is serious. I mean, the Reserve Bank in one day cut Australian interest rates by a complete percentage point. Yeah. None of this quarter of a percent, quarter of a percent, quarter of a percent. That had a that had a big effect. Yeah, it certainly sent the message that it was serious. Well, I'm very serious now about taking a quick break, and we'll continue this edifying discussion in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Australia's bushfire season was devastating and unprecedented. More than 20% of the country's forests burned, destroying buildings, taking lives and decimating animal populations and biodiversity. But this season's fires haven't just changed the physical landscape, but also the political one. They've sparked a national conversation on fire management, the impact on vulnerable communities and how the country needs to tackle climate change. Join the team from Policy Forum Pod at a very special live event where we look at what comes next. With a panel of experts, we'll examine the long-term impacts of the bushfires on Australia's economy, health and biodiversity and look forward to what the country could and should be doing in the wake of the crisis. Australia Ablaze What Next takes place at the Australian National University on Tuesday the 24th of March. Register for this free event at policyforum.net forward slash events. 
welcome back. And before we get back into discussing uh, the coronavirus and a range of other issues, a bit of a public service announcement. This is your last call. Get your orders in at the bar now. We are recording this month's Ask Policy Forum on Friday afternoon of this week. So we need your questions or else it will be a very short podcast indeed. What do you want to know from our panellists? Our crack team of experts will be on hand to respond to your questions, however serious or silly. Get them in via the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, on that site, or using the hashtag AskPolicyForum on Twitter. And don't forget, we're only sharing the pod through Facebook group now, so it's time to join the pod squad there if you want access to the podcast. I'm on hosting duties for this Ask Policy Forum, so it's bound to be good. I'm not sure about that. I'm just reading this. <laughs> silly questions, you say. <laughs> well, well. Silly silly questions and perhaps even sillier answers. I think there was a degree of beer drinking and uh, even some <laughs> Japanese whiskey drinking at the last one. And uh, I think the sort of silliness component, uh, you know, <laughs> you could probably measure it going up <laughs> gradually. As uh, But it was a lot of fun anyway, and it will be a lot of fun this Friday afternoon as well. So let's just go back to this, um, uh, you know, all-consuming issue of, of coronavirus and the implications of it. Sarah, I'm keen to get your impression of this. You weren't obviously covering politics um, in Canberra 12 years ago, uh, but what's the mood like in in Parliament House now? Is there a sort of a sense of the old timers wandering around saying, "I've seen this before"? Or? Yeah, I'm hearing a little bit. Hearing some of the people, it's being um, invoked a fair bit, and I mean, every day there's another. Um, whether it's you know a doorstop or people talking about this, it's literally the 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 pumping heart of of the gallery in Parliament right now is everything that's going on around this, and um, it sort of started I think as it was a real discussion about I think education was huge at the beginning we were talking a lot about the international students and in the past I think week it's really started to focus in on the economy and and stimulus and and so on it was really timely because we had the senate estimates there for a couple of weeks so a lot of treasury guys and different people were being asked about this um and when treasury was saying you know we're going to lose at least at least 0.5 from economic growth. That was a big thing as well. So it's been this real confluence of of um, and a know, slow things. burn in a way. It's almost like the a bit like what Peter was saying before about the, the the sort of just the sheer number of implications of this. That it's taken policymakers, mm. uh, even the central bank, uh, treasury, and so forth, some time to get a get a handle on the scale and pace of the possibilities here. Absolutely. Uh, when the Reserve Bank Governor was, uh, you know, after the previous meeting, not the most recent one, but before that, they were putting the uh, the damage from the coronavirus at about 0. 0. 0.2, 0. 0. Yeah. Uh, or 0. 0.25. I yeah. think they, t- they had 0. 0.2 for the bushfires and 0. 0.25 for yeah. coronavirus. Well, Treasury now puts that at 0. 0.5. At least, yeah. Uh, the, for the coronavirus impact. I suspect... If asked now, it might even be a little bit more. Probably. I don't know, but even that, that didn't contain a number of things like supply chain problems and the like. So it's interesting the psychology of this, isn't it? That we it, it does take some time to understand all the different ways in which this uh, could play out. I mean, Absolutely. if you're an Uber driver, for example, and you've got no you've got no um, sick leave, you just don't you don't show up if you don't feel well, or perhaps you don't show up because you don't want to be picking up all and sundry from the airport and having contact with, with, you know, 100 people in a day. Mm. Um, and in every and industry. All of these things are, are bits of economic activity that 
suddenly stop. I mean, imagine the economic bits activity. of income too. Mm. Bits of income. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think, I think a lot of this is actually driven by the fact that you know, let's not forget that this is a public health crisis, mm. and what's driven the behaviour silliness? We'd have to say. Um, You're is, talking about toilet roll. Oh, toilet oh papers, goodness! Yeah. It's, it's not yeah. a diarrhoeal disease. It's, it's no, a, it's, it's, a, it's an influenza thing. of sorts. But yeah. the thing is, it's it drives back to people's fundamental fear, and that's for their health. Mm. Um, and so, in fact, it's one of the reasons why the greatest crime you can commit upon anyone is to deprive them of their life. Mm. Um, that's why murder is, is way up there in the statutory books. So we hold our health so dearly um, because obviously without health we have nothing. You don't have any enjoyment in life. You certainly, I mean, it doesn't really matter if you've got a job, if you haven't got health, you haven't got anything. Um, and so it's that, it really is that fundamental fear that's driving this whole behaviour change so that do people go to work or not go to work? I don't want to risk my mm. health. I don't want to risk the health of my family. Do I, you know, sit in a little TARDIS with all you people? All of us actually thought about, you know, risk to our personal health in Coming terms in of... Here. Yeah, yeah, coming into a very this small room. This is a very small room. A very small room. It is a small room and there are six mm. of us in here. Yeah, at the absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing regarding fear as well beyond beyond the health is the fear of, of the unknown, right? And for literally the last few weeks or months as this virus has been developing, questions to policymakers, to government, to heads of education, tourism sectors, and, you know, the, the response has been, understandably, we just don't know. Mm. We just don't know. Like, this is where this is at now. Could this get worse? We don't know. This is where the, the the infection rate is at. This is where the fatality rate is at. Could that change? Could there be a bit of mutation? Inevit- it will inevitably change. Yeah, we don't. And, yeah. And, and the interesting thing, I think it was in the, um, uh, could have been in the Canberra Times, was a um, great line that fear itself is a contagion. Oh, that um, was my line, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, fabulous. <laughs> well, you just quoted <laughs> well, Mark back at him. Nice. Haven't yeah. I heard that but, somewhere but, before? Somewhere. <laughs> but, indeed that's, but indeed, that's that's really true. And that's the thing that actually drives this sort of behavioural change mm. um, and gets into, you know, it's the, it's the bread and butter of, of public health is actually trying to get social engineering, get people to change their behaviour. And yeah. also embedded the understanding of why we do behave in either rational or yeah. totally irrational ways. Yeah. The thing well, the point I was trying to make in that piece, though, was that it, there's also needs to be some sort of you know some balance struck here because if you look at the situation in Australia at the time we're going you know doing this recording it, it's slightly less than a hundred people have mm. been infected there have been three fatalities all of those have been you know 78 81 and 95 or 84 and 95 mm. um, and th- this is the evidence too in Italy it's one of the countries with the oldest uh, average age in the world and it is overwhelmingly the elderly who are succumbing to the disease in terms of fatalities that's not nothing i'm not pretend- pretending that, that doesn't matter but but you know Brendan Murphy the chief health officer yesterday chief medical officer was saying that the overwhelming majority of Australians who've been uh, affected by this disease have actually had mild symptoms yes. and will make full recovery. The ones that haven't, he made the point, were the ones that have died. Now, obviously, they didn't have mild conditions, they, they uh, symptoms, they, they suffered and didn't make it, and that's a tragedy for, for their families. But that's also typical for all influenza outbreaks also, of mm. course, because those who are um, uh, less resilient, which is they've got compromised immune systems, yes. which of course is always the elderly, particularly those in nursing homes. Yeah, and people with comorbidities, people yes. with um, yeah. underlying health conditions. And, and again, none of those people have a choice about that. You don't have a choice about how old you are or you don't have a choice about whether you're Excuse me, whether you're immunosuppressed because you've, you know, had chemotherapy or whatever mm. it might be. So we shouldn't, you know, sort of suggest that there's some, um, you know, that that's, that's kind of a relief in some way. But it is an important aspect of understanding how this, 
could uh, affect the, the overall community. Mm-hmm. And it should be part two of alleviating that nonsensical fear. Yes. Um, because again, back to my earlier statements in terms of uh, you know the thing we gre- uh, protect greatest is our own health, um, then it's not a great risk to us. Um, and it's just that that's not um, that's not done. Of course, a lot of that's been media and the anti-social media and all those other <laughs> anti-social. Yeah. What, <laughs> the, what the prime minister's been doing is really good. It would help if he was a different prime minister in the sense that he he starts with very low popularity and a, a lot of low trust. But and fairly late, really. Let's be honest. Yeah, but what? Well, this, he learned the, something the, from the bushfire. Labor didn't take this long to get at it. So. You know, I mean, it strikes me that this has been going on for some time now, and we still haven't seen any ads uh, advising That's people true. about uh, how how to wash your hands, or how to, what to do if you are not feeling well. What the government's got uh, planned for keeping the economy. That's true, going. and we know they can be quick with that. They yeah, got so they, they had that was a bushfire. Yeah, um, their the, uh, feet on the ground. But what he has been doing is daily press conferences with the chief medical officer. Admitting to uncertainty, mm. sharing what is known. This is in all those crisis communications textbooks. This is exactly what you should do. And uh, it's extremely good because the chief medical officer is standing with him. We get an idea that they're sharing uh, what they know and that when that changes, you know, we'll hear more the next day. It, it could be a lot worse. I'm, I'm sort of. Uh, Quite comforted by uh, uh, by that, you don't get the feeling, or I don't get the feeling, uh, that they're holding anything back uh, from us. Although I actually suspect that it's um, it's again reflect well, not only the policy vacuum, but it's reflective of the low regard for for health um, and the fact that they do prioritise the economy rather than health. And I think that's um, uh, and again because public health is the I'm going to rattle our cage now um, is that. We're the, we're the poor cousin, I guess, because when public health systems are operating perfectly, they're humming around in the background and people don't see them. And so they're taken for granted and their significance is not recognised. And so when you when we get a crisis like this and everyone starts thinking, oh, goodness gracious me, public health, public health systems, um, it's strong public health systems with all the guidance and all the resourcing and the excellence and the expertise and the epidemiology that differentiates the health status and well-being of developed countries versus the developing countries and, uh, you know, erosion of that. So there's expectation, because I can't see it, there's expectation that it will always be there, but it's been eroded, eroded, eroded. Indeed, when the coalition came to office, it cut the Preventative Health Agency, abolished it. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, how quickly can Australia really mobilise? We've seen China build hospitals, which fall down, um, but they can mobilise really, really quickly. And I wonder what our massive mobilisation in the public health space could be in really response to it because I mean the GPs have been arguing that they haven't been getting the messaging. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean they have a direct link to the to the chief health officer officer, and they also get front what used to be Friday faxes. So it's very easy for that messaging to mm-hmm. to get back. Given that you, you know one would hope that they're actually already on top of this because that's supposed to be their area of expertise. But still, as far as all the other things in terms of what systems are we going to have in terms of uh, ensuring that the essential services. Still, still come to work. Yeah, I think. Um, was... So, what has to fall in place so that they won't take the day off because they're worried about the health or they're yeah. worried about their own family? 
and and all those sort of things in terms of, you know, do we have special clinics for people to go in so you don't rock into GP clinic? I think they have talked about setting up They're talking about them, but how long does it take us to mobilise? And I think the scary thing was when he was, yeah, and when mobilisation resources of staff, when Mm. um, the Prime Minister first was talking in the response plan about surge capacity and the Deputy Mm. Chief Medical Officer was like, look, we have surge capacity for influenza. All the conversations I was having with all doctors and all medical experts and all nurses was like, what surge capacity? What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? We've had a code black in the hospital, which just means how over, over you know. They go on bypass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All this stuff. Like through times like before even any of this started, we are at that mm. breaking point and they're talking about all this like this reserved capacity, this mm. surge capacity, and none of us know what that means mm. because it is already we are at that point. So it was mm. really scary to hear that, to hear the PM just go, yeah, surge, no problem, and, you know, deputy deputy chief so, medical officers say the same. So then talking to the people in the hospitals and practising saying, Oh goodness! What what are they talking yeah. about? What does that mean? Because we we have nothing left. Yeah, I read a uh, a, a tale on Twitter. It was a thread on Twitter yesterday, and it told the story of a, a, a guy who had come back from Italy and felt a little bit unwell, and he decided to get himself tested. So he tried to go to his GP. His GP told him that uh, look, you know, don't come here. You need mm. to go and get yourself tested at one of the uh, laboratories. He rang one of the laboratories. They said they don't do retail. You have to, you know, you can't come directly to us. And anyway, he then got onto some hotline and was told to go to some place where he could stand in a queue, which he established had about Co- 300 Co- people in the queue. And yeah. he said, well, I don't even know if I'm ill, but I could well be ill from standing in the queue <laughs> yes. with a bunch of people who exactly. think they are ill. Um, and so I'm not going to do that. And Dr. Mikesh Hakawell has been in, uh, testing people in the car park of a of his uh, general practice in Melbourne because he figures that's the safest place to mm. test them in their cars rather than have them, uh, you know, mm. queuing in, in, in his enclosed uh, space. reception And so that's area. not an ideal system. You know, that's, you know, that's not a first world system. To, <laughs> no, <laughs> if no, we've got in, this in know, wonderful du- surge capacity. He's an industrious man. And, I mean, in WA there was photos of people outside the, the hospitals, um, you know, that was the, the, the interim like, mm. you know, oh, we just got to test you to stay outside this building sitting on basically cement on <laughs> footpaths <laughs> waiting. <laughs> Don't feel and degraded. No, <laughs> and it was this, and I mean, you know, every, it is a crisis, but there were, there has been a sense in some of the instances we've all mentioned now of elements of haphazardness, of elements of of a little bit of a, you know, mm. a, not always it, it clear what to do, clear what actually is going on. And while I agree in a lot of senses that the communication has been good regarding press releases every day and so on, there are also other spaces where I think it, it, it hasn't been. But it's a difficult thing for the government to balance, right? Because, mm-hmm. of course, every time that you escalate the uh, COVID-19 crisis, you're obviously stripping confidence out of the the economy and, and people, you know, start panic buying. I mean, you know, I watched commercial news last week and it was – it pretty much opened with, you know, COVID-19, we are at war, whoa, you should be scared, you know. Mm. And so, exactly. And I think this is, this is, this is not helping. I mean, even Insider's package on, um, on the virus on Sunday was, was, you know, pretty retail for the Insider's program. And I don't think that is really helping the, the situation. But I guess, um, I guess it would be good if we had a, a stronger sense of, the actual policy infrastructure that we know exists to manage uh, uh, outbreaks of, of ec- epidemics. We know the government has this machinery, like to to basically who it is they're actually talking to, just to reassure the public that this planning is actually going on, and that um, to increase their confidence that 
once a crisis really does emerge, that systems will be in place. Because at the moment, I think there's just too much scope for people to imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, and although what we've just heard, of course, is the system is not actually functioning all that well, mm-hmm. and this is with very, very few cases. And you've got to realise, of course, that this this COVID is just one of you know, the EIDs, emerging infectious diseases that we're going to get more of. And the WHO have been uh, warning us for decades now that we're going to get a big bad one. And that will be when you get the double whammy, highly contagious and highly virulent and people die. That will be cause for panic. And mm. if we can't get ourselves organising this, then, you know, what we're told, the because that day will come. Working, right? Do we actually mm. know the system isn't working or what are we, are we hearing that the system may not work well when the crisis comes? So when, as Mark was just mentioning, you know, some chap trying to do the right thing and get tested, hard, you know, hard as Hades trying to, trying to get that and he was trying to do the right thing and not infect other people. I mean, mm. that sort of information should be the way you know, it should be something that's publicly available and the system should be there ready to accommodate him. Mm, and anyone else who thinks, you know, mm. I sat next to that man in the plane coming from Sydney, I did this, I did that, I did something else. There's you know, questions as well about, myself. yeah, learning from lessons of the past. Obviously, SARS hit different places at different times. But there was a bunch of, like, reviews and so on after, especially in Canada, it really took its toll and it was mm. like, this is what happens, this is what we need to do and so forth. And I think only in the Medical Journal of Australia um, yesterday there was talk about, look, there were lessons from such mm. situations that have been there waiting to be learned and it made the note that like a lot of our systems in the public health sector and so on have not changed sort of pre and post events like that we haven't learned oh this could happen again and, and, and still facing b- budget cuts exactly so that was something that was interesting as well and it's that case being made about like and possibly will be talked about more so after the virus subsides because now and for good reason it's a lot about how we cope with this the best but regarding how we could have prepared better, what we could have done during and so on. I think this is a conversation that's going to be going on long after this all subsides. As well as keeping tabs on the messaging so that the silly messaging about the silly toilet rolls so you know, doesn't take priority. And, I just and, don't and know what to make it. We, we had silly messaging or uh, extreme, uh, so extreme it was comical, messaging in the AIDS crisis. Mm. And mm, that true. plus an awful lot of money and seriousness. And uh, bipartisanship. Divided. What, yes, and bipartisanship. from a health minister who was determined that we would stop setting up special clinics and so on and scaring the living daylights out of people who uh, you know, wouldn't have been particularly at risk with those Grim Reaper ads and so on. That worked. I don't know whether government has the – and it was almost a moral crusade from the, the health minister, Neil Blewett. I, I don't know if our government has that sort of sense. Can, can I just say we've got one advantage or probably a number of advantages. I I agree that when you think about it, uh, Sarah, we're, we're in a bad, uh, we're, you know, the, there's not a lot of evidence of surge capacity. We have Australia, a very high proportion of general practitioners, which are general mm. practitioners are great because mm. they don't cost much. They're the, they can triage, they can send people to hospitals or not. We have a lot of private hospitals, which frankly aren't being that much used, which we could not necessarily nationalise, not nation, necessarily commandeer, but um, can uh, be made, uh, can be put into service to do things that are useful instead of things which are, you know, cosmetic and uh, and other such things. So we're not starting probably, you say we don't have surge capacity, we're probably not starting from a bad place internationally so long as there's uh, strong leadership, uh, you know, and, and money 
I think it's always good to compare yourself as a country to yourself as a country, let's say 10 years ago, whatever, rather than to, to other countries at the time, mm. kind of go, what did we, what were we, where were we at this time that we are now? Have we improved to, you know, compare to, to hold yourself against the bar of where not. we're at? On, on that criteria. You know, in terms, because I think it can be, you know, fallacious to, to do so when it turns to like the international um, stage. And, you know, the government does this with all kinds of things, such as the economy, when things look bad in the economy. Um, for different things, maybe we're talking about wage growth or whatever, to go, oh, oh, but like look at the UK right now or look at this and look at that. Like, no, look at us 10 years ago or look at us here comparing yourself to yourself I think is is potentially – well, that's how I look at it. At it least. is interesting that point you make. Uh, the UK I noticed just before coming down to the studio had recorded I think four deaths and that's a much larger population than ours, much closer to Europe. It's in the Northern Hemisphere more winter. More densely populated. More densely populated. Going through its flu season. Hemisphere winter. Um, now, look, I guess there's a long latency period with this uh, virus in terms of uh, before its uh, symptoms might show up, before someone becomes aware they may be infected or whatever. But, uh, yeah, there, are, there, are, there is there's so much uncertainty about this. And I think that is the nature of emergency responses. Uh, going back to the point we were where we started um, – when you think about the GFC and the decisions that Labor had to make back in 2008-9, um, it was making decisions with an incomplete uh, picture in front of you on the basis of what you do know and a whole lot of uncertainty. And in those circumstances, the conservative thing to do is to overcompensate, not undercompensate. And I, th- I guess that's yes. the message. And I think there are reasons to be a little bit worried about that from this government because it spent so much time trying determinedly not to be Labor, trying, you know, it's it's key people have sort of built their careers on saying the GFC didn't really happen, you know, it was a bit of a chimera. Although to be fair, a lot of those people have left. Andrew Robb said that a lot. We don't want to go into debt. We've doubled the debt, you know. Um, you know Joe Hockey's debt, left. A lot of those people, uh, um, Tony Abbott's left. The, we still these, have Barnaby. What's that? We still have Barnaby. Uh, yeah, well, Bless. he's not in the go- he's not a, he's not a minister, so it's 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 something. It's not as bad as it could be had those people been mm. uh, uh, forced to confront their words. Yes. Now, look, we've gone on for a very long time talking about this, which is justified. We've of course played into um, you know one of the government's other desires, which is not to talk about sports rorts and a few other things that suddenly seem peripheral compared to this. Uh, I guess that's unfortunate. Before we go, Maria, and I can see you're frustrated, you really wanted to get into that, uh, we'll have to do a, another special uh, podcast on that perhaps. But look, you've got a couple of, rev- a couple of reviews that you can uh, uh, read out for us just before we go. I do, I do. Uh, this one is from Pinto Polo Pony. That's a lot of peas. Um, <laughs> essential for the political junkie, a very informative, non-combative discussion on federal politics, well conducted by Mark with interesting participants, compulsive listening. Thank you. That was five stars. And then Hanette, who gave us four stars, was it's very interesting, not superficial like a lot of news coverage. Thank you, Hanette. It's very insightful as it lets you hear the thoughts of some really knowledgeable academics on the issues behind the political game. So do please send us um, your feedback. Uh, please review us. It helps other people find the podcast because of the way the algorithm works on Apple iPod tunes thing. Absolutely. And beautifully curated too because uh, there was no negative ones there and uh, I'm all for that. I blame Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Look, thank you very much for joining us on this week's Democracy Sausage. Thanks to Liz Hanna, Peter Martin, Sarah Eisen, of course to you, Maria uh, Tafalaga, for being here. And we look forward to talking to you again next week on Democracy Sausage. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Thanks.